on the web at wagp.net. This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed handling accurately the word of truth. That's Paul's admonition to young Timothy, a pastor, and since we are to uh, be examples to the flock, in one sense, it's an admonition to every Christian. That's what we're here for, for the next hour, to study God's Word. And maybe there's an issue in your life, a question that you've had as you've been studying the Bible. You're not sure what it means, or in, you're looking for information as to how it applies to a challenge you're facing in your life or ministry. You're free to call us locally. Again, it's 843-525-1859. 843-525-1859 for our internet listeners. We have a toll-free number. It's 877, the call letters, WAGP 980. Or you can email us here directly into the studio, as many people do every week. And the email address that will pop up on the screen in front of us is TBL. That stands for the Bible line, TBL at W-A-G-P dot net. Rick, good to be here as always. Let's go ahead and we'll get started. It is indeed, Pastor. And uh, we had a question the last time we were live that we were only able to touch on the surface. I believe it was this one. Uh, Correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, Is it not biblically sound for a Christian Marine or a Christian police officer to kill or injure evil people in the line of duty? A relatedly similar question regarding defending oneself or family with force, including deadly force, uh, to defend your family, etc. I guess to put it another way is how do we as Christians reconcile the killing of our enemies with the love your enemy or turn the other cheek portions of Scripture, and would you give some biblical references regarding the topic of Christians in the 21st century dealing with something like ISIS, and relatedly, is it wrong to wish to do violence to people like ISIS rather than just feeling love toward Hmm. them? Uh, The apostle writes this in Romans 13, let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, he who resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they have opposed, and, the, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. Then he makes this critical statement. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have the same uh, praise from the same. For it is a minister of God. Whether we're talking about the army or a police officer, they are referred to as a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. Uh, It's a minister of God, an avenger, who brings wrath upon the one who practices evil. So God's real clear here in the New Testament about the authority that he gives to a minister of God. Now, sometimes people say, well, didn't Jesus say, you know, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you? Yes, he did. But please know you cannot truly love someone without hating them. And love that doesn't hate is a really, it's a form of hypocritical love. 
so if a man loves what's right, he's going to hate what's wrong and he's going to hate evil. And of course, as the Bible teaches the principle where hate to sin, but to love the sinner. But that doesn't mean that uh, God doesn't give authority sometimes, even in terms of taking life. Now, God's very clear in Romans twelve nineteen, the chapter right before here. He says, never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. So there's uh, to be no revenge. God alone is to take revenge. He says, I will, I will, I will repay, says the Lord. But understand that while I personally do not have a right to take revenge, God does give authority to government, to the police, to the army as a a minister. Uh, Now, many times, like our Adventist friends who are conscientious objectors, much like the Amish and others, they'll say, well, the Bible says do not kill. Well, that is in the Decalogue, and it really, it's an old English word that doesn't have as much uh, definition to it as the biblical context expresses. And if you lived in the 17th century, when the King James Version of the Bible was written, there was uh, just one word for killing. Uh, There was not the word murder. And so the newer translations say, thou shall not murder. Why? Because they want to make a distinction between killing and murder. In Exodus 20, where the Decalogue is given, like Deuteronomy 5, do not murder. And yet you just turn over a short time later in Exodus 22, and he speaks about um, the freedom to take another person's life, even in self-defense. He talks about if, if a thief is caught in Exodus 22, verse 2, let me read it to you. If the thief is caught while breaking in and is struck down so that he dies, there'll be no blood guiltiness on his account. So he's talking about a thief who breaks into your house at night in the context. And remember, this is the day when there's no electricity. And when it got dark, it really got dark. And someone comes in, you don't know if they're trying to hurt you or not. And you protect your family and you take their life. Uh, God says you're not guilty. He said, however, but if the sun has risen on him, there will be blood guiltiness on his account. He shall surely make restitution. If he owns nothing, then he shall be sold for theft. So if it happens during the day and you can see your life is not being threatened, then God is very clear. If you take that person's life, then you are guilty. You know, there was a Texas law that was challenged a few years back. There was a guy who was supposed to be watching his next door neighbor's home. And there was a couple of men who were breaking in uh, to the house next door. And uh, he called the police and he said, they're breaking in. I'm going to shoot them. They said, no, please don't shoot them. You know, let the police handle this and I'm going to shoot them. You know, uh, you need to get here. And they're breaking into my neighbor's house. And so he shot them and killed them both. And of course, the jury found him not guilty. And I remember on Fox News, Sean Hannity and others saying, hey, you know, Texas law, he's well, it may be he may have been innocent under Texas law. But he was not an innocent under God's law because his life was not being threatened. He uh, clearly took two people who were doing something evil, but he did not have the authority to take their life. So God gives the authority, capital punishment, war. I mean, just think about it. There are some people who say, well, you know, I can't serve in the army. I can't take someone else's life. And, you know, if I shoot someone, I'm sending them into an eternity in hell. Hey, look, if a man won't get right when he's in a foxhole and death is steering him down the barrel, he'll never get right. And so that's not your job. 
Um, look, there were two thieves that hung next to Christ and only one got his heart right that day. And in either case, God is very clear in Genesis nine. He says, whoever sheds man's blood, man's blood shall be shed. That's before the Mosaic law. And he reaffirms that truth in the new Testament in Peter's first epistle, as well as here in Romans 13, that government is a minister of God. Look, if someone breaks into your house tonight and they're going to kill your wife or your children, I hope you'll do something to protect your kids. I hope you won't say, well, I'm going to turn the other cheek. Uh, Jesus, you know, speaks of that, but it's a verse that's grossly taken out of context. Again, it's dealing with personal revenge. But if your life is being threatened, God has given you authority to exercise whatever it takes to protect your life or the life of a loved one. And what is true in your home is true in a state. It's true in a nation. And so governments that are weak, that don't put down evil are not doing what God has called them to do. You know, many are critical of the current administration because they're not willing to call the enemy, the enemy. Look, ISIS is the enemy. Uh, You don't, you don't cuddle up next to the Muslim world and say, well, you know, it's just a different faith and this is the extreme portion. Actually, what you're seeing in ISIS is actually real, true Islam lived out. If you've read the Quran, I had to read it in seminary. There are 109 verses that sanction violence against both Christians and Jews. And so there are some Muslims today who just take the, 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 the Quran at face value. That's why they're doing what they're doing. That's why they're seeking this worldwide caliphate and everything else, because, you know, they're just reading their own book. But then there is a lot of Muslims, especially in the West, who have been westernized, who, um, you know, they're like people today in America who call themselves Christians. They have no idea what the Bible is about. There's the Bible-believing Christian who takes the Bible at face value because he's had a second birth. He has the mind of Christ, believes the Bible to be the infallible word of God, and applies it accordingly to life. And then there are, you know, millions and millions of Americans who are just Christianized, but really don't even know what the Bible is. Only about half of Americans can name more than four of the Ten Commandments. And it's, it's just, it's pathetic. Uh, we are a biblically illiterate society. So the Muslim world today that takes the Quran seriously, you're seeing it expressed in ISIS. It's ruthless. It's evil. It's evil beyond evil. And unless we acknowledge it for that and face the enemy for what the enemy is, uh, we are going to be in great trouble. So these are challenging days. These are sad days. You know, the government and the police, I might add, are ministers of God to put down evil and to put up good. Now, if the government praises good, I mean, praises evil and puts down good, that's a bad thing. And there have been some events, obviously, in the optics of, you know, what we've seen with some policeman killing a guy who's on the ground looks really bad, though I don't know, obviously, all the details, but that looks really, really bad. Uh, But let's face it, you know, less than 1% of all the policemen in the United States are are bad. You know, look, there's bad people in every profession. There's bad preachers. There's bad doctors. There's bad lawyers. There's a lot of good ones out there. And God help us if we don't respect the police and teach our children to respect the police. God help us if we don't have people who are willing to take that job upon themselves and have the courage to carry out as ministers of God, putting up good and putting down evil. Because you don't want to live in a society where there are no police. You don't want to live in a society 
where there is no army. Uh, because man by nature is not basically good. He's evil and he's fallen. Now, that's the real quick answer. What I suggest to this caller is that they go to my series on Romans and listen to the first two messages in Romans 13, 1 through 8. So I'll, you'll get the two-hour answer and in much more detail because each sermon is about an hour long. All right, good question. Let's go to the next one, Rick. 843-525-1859 if you have a question on today's Bible line. And the listener just called in a minute ago would like to know, what does the Bible say about Christians working at jobs that supply alcohol to people? Well, God says in the book of Habakkuk, woe to you who give your neighbor to drink. And, you know, I'm really saddened by what is happening in America with the use of alcohol. I'm speaking now about Christendom. Uh, there's a new movement, especially within the so-called reformed camps who say under the banner of freedom, it's okay to drink. Look, they're just wrong. They'll say, well, you know, the Bible's against drunkenness, but it's not against having beer or a glass of wine. They're wrong. They're wrong. They're wrong. They're wrong. They're wrong. They misrepresent the scriptures, just like those on the far end of the other spectrum would say that the wine in the Bible was not real wine. It was grapefruit juice. Look, God is against two things very clearly. He's against drunkenness and he's against the use of strong drink. Uh, One exception for strong drink, Proverbs 31, you can give it to a dying, despairing man. Uh, We don't typically say, hey, have a little morphine here, friend. It'll make you feel good. Uh, But if the person was suffering from cancer and they were in immense pain, as an act of mercy, we'd give them some morphine. That's kind of the context of the use of strong drink in Proverbs 31. Strong drink, before you can apply any text of Scripture to the culture in which you live in, you have to ask, what did it mean to the original audience? And so some people say, well, you know, I I don't use strong drink. I don't use rum and whiskey and vodka. You know, that's strong drink. God's against that, clearly. Well, look, the distilled alcohols didn't come until hundreds and hundreds of years after even the New Testament was completed. So what did it mean to the original audience? Strong drink was fermented wine. Now, the Hebrew word yayin, the Greek word oinos, um, could refer to uh, wine that was just squeezed from the grape and had not yet been fermented. They would call that oinos or wine. Uh, Now, today we'd call that grape juice, but they would call that wine. And then when it had turned, they would call that strong drink. It would still be called wine, but it was called strong drink as well. And that's what God was forbidding, uh, that you did not take strong drink. And it's well documented. There's a great article from a guy who uh, graduated from Princeton Seminary. His name is Robert Stein. And if you go to my website, searchthescriptures.org, I think you will find it there under one of the tabs, a Stein, you know, like a beer Stein, easy to remember. But he's, of course, against the use of alcohol. And he does a superb job. This is actually an article that appeared in Christianity Today in 1973. They would never print such an article today. Uh, many other great Bible scholars, Norm Geisler in the 1980s, it appeared in Bibliotheca Sacra, which is the oldest theological journal in the United States. Uh, we're, we're talking about some great Bible scholars who have espoused this position, which today is now a minority position. But he argued that typically, both uh, as you study uh, old rabbinical literature and as you study things like the Didash, which is a second century A.D. pastoral manual, so that when they celebrated the Lord's Supper at certain times of year, 
when the uh, grape juice had already fermented because there was not fresh grapes available, they would make it very clear you didn't want to be guilty of using strong drink at the Lord's table. You mixed it in a four or five to one ratio, five parts water, one part wine. So the symbol was there, but neither were they partaking of this strong drink. Jewish literature abounds with the same principle. So when you go back into the culture, if you go back even in the secular literature, uh, that's how they understood strong drink. Look, God doesn't want you to partake of strong drink. It's just logical if you think about it. Forget, you know, you can argue it. It causes a brother to stumble, of course. Does it glorify God in our day? No. Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. It certainly doesn't do that. Um, you know, you can't, I don't think most Christians in a clear conscience, if they're walking with God, can, can have a beer. But just think about it logically. The first time, if you're listening to me, you had a beer or a glass of wine. I can guarantee you were buzzed. I guarantee you, you say, well, I don't, that doesn't do that to me anymore. It takes three or four before I get to that point. Well, it may, but God didn't want that to happen once. What's the greatest commandment? Jesus quotes it in Matthew 22, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Look, a buzzed mind, the billboards say, is a drunk mind. That's what the law says. And God's law is much higher than man's law. And someone who is buzzed, is not really loving God with their whole heart. They're, they're in violation of the greatest commandment. And uh, here, here's the thing. People talk about, well, you know, you can become an alcoholic. Oh, that's baloney. That's pure baloney. Uh, there's no such thing as an alcoholic in the Bible. God calls it drunkenness. He calls it being a drunkard. Why does he want people not to take strong drink? Because it's addictive. That's the nature of it. People get hooked on it, just like they get hooked on crack and cocaine and other drugs. It's addictive. So God is giving his people warnings. Understand it's a blessing strong drink because typically the water filtration system in the early centuries of the world, and especially in the day that we live in, even in some parts of the world, look, if I go to the Ukraine and I brush my teeth in the water, I'm going to be sick for a couple of days. Why? Because the, uh, they have human waste that's thrown into some of the reservoirs and they, you know, pump it out and they try to filter it, but it's just a, it's a bad system. And so missionaries, even a hundred years ago would carry a wine satchel around their neck and they would squirt some wine into the water. Why? Cause it killed the bacteria and made it safe to drink. And you didn't have to boil every glass of water you wanted to have. So in that sense, it was a blessing from God. Um, and I've got a whole sermon on this. You know, people say, well, Jesus made wine and he drank wine and all that. Uh, look, that is such an abused text of scripture. Uh, listen to my message from John chapter two. Go to searchthescriptures.org. Click on the gospel of John. I preach maybe 40 messages out of John. Listen to the message from John two. And I walk through that contextually. And it's not what most people make it today. Great question. Let's go to the next one, Rick. All right. We uh, had a listener from Rhode Island that uh, asked the following. Uh, In Exodus 20, verse 8, remember to keep the Sabbath day holy. Uh, You have six days to labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of your Lord God. That day you must not do any work, neither you nor your son nor daughter, your slave or slave girl, your cattle or the alien residing among you. For in Six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. And on the seventh day he rested. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath and declared it holy. I visited your church's website and was disappointed to learn your worship services are on Sunday. The seventh day of the week is Saturday. The Jewish people observed the seventh day Sabbath, and our Lord Jesus honored his Father's holy Sabbath and was not resurrected until the Sabbath was over on Sunday morning. 
I know the Roman Catholic Pope about 535 AD changed the seventh-day Sabbath to the first day of the week, uh, Sunday, a pagan day to worship the sun god, to please the new Roman Catholic converts and to take the Jewish out of the Sabbath and not pleasing and fearing men. Uh, let's see, I'm sorry, uh, Jewish out of the Sabbath. Pastor Rogi, shouldn't we be more concerned about pleasing our father and obeying his commandments about his holy Sabbath and not pleasing and fearing men more? I'm searching for a church that honors God's holy Sabbath. There is a Seventh-day Adventist on the southern tip of Rhode Island, but they ask new converts to abstain from unclean food. But our Lord Jesus said himself, this is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of your mouth. I prayed to our Father for guidance in our Lord Jesus' name about his Seventh-day Sabbath. My heart is heavy with burden for my Christian brothers and sisters. We are to obey all of the Ten Commandments. Well, I appreciate your heart in that, that you want to please God, and he's the one we ultimately please. And if we please men and displease God, it doesn't matter who we please. And if we please God and we displease men, it doesn't matter whom we displease. So God calls you to please him, and that's what it sounds like you want to do. I just think you have a misunderstanding of the Sabbath as it relates to the church. The first mention of the Sabbath, of course, is in Genesis 2, and it's not mentioned again for 2,500 years when you come to Exodus chapter 20, because the Sabbath was for Israel. Uh, Exodus 31, 13 through 17, God affirms that this is the, this, this day, let me, let me just turn there, I'm just doing it from memory, um, Exodus 31, God is making uh, a covenant agreement with the people of Israel. And this is what is very important for us to understand how this relates to the Old Testament, to Israel. Uh, He said, but the Lord spoke to Moses saying, this is Exodus chapter 31. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, but as for you, speak to the sons of Israel saying, you shall surely observe my Sabbaths for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. Therefore, you observe the Sabbath, for it is holy to you. Everyone who profanes it shall surely be put to death. So, again, they're living in a theocracy. God is ruling. There are some sins that, the the violation of them, uh, the the punishment was death. Uh, If you worked on the Sabbath, that was it. You were cut off, karat. If you uh, committed adultery, that was it. You committed homosexuality, that was it. There were certain sins under the theocracy of Israel that were punishable by death. Now, I believe all Ten Commandments are applicable today. There are some who would say, well, just nine out of ten, and they would admit the Sabbath. I would say all ten are applicable, but the application of certain uh, biblical commandments may change in one dispensation to another. For instance, I doubt you brought an animal sacrifice to church last week, but God specifically commanded, you know, when sacrifices were to be brought under what circumstances, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, Why didn't you do that? You say, well, because of the once and for all sacrifice of Christ. So you would acknowledge at some point that the application of certain commandments may be limited to a particular time frame. So when you come into the new covenant, the Lord of the Sabbath, you, you mentioned the fact that he was raised on the dead on Sunday uh, because he was resting on, on Saturday, the Sabbath. I, I don't think that was the reason he was raised from the dead on Sunday. He was raised from the dead on Sunday because God had prophesied in the Old Testament that he would be raised on Sunday. 
Uh, I delivered to you as the first importance of the gospel that Christ died, was buried, and was raised. How? According to the scriptures. He was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. The Old Testament scriptures had prophesied and illustrated by type that the Messiah would be raised on Sunday, the first day of the week. Uh, it was, there, there were uh, seven festivals uh, that God had given to the nation of Israel, commanded under the Mosaic law. And four of them were fulfilled during the time frame of Christ's first coming. The last three will be fulfilled during the time frame of his second coming. So it's not by accident that Jesus dies on Passover, that he is buried uh, on the first day of the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and he is raised on the Feast of first fruits. Um, the, uh, on Sunday. And then on Pentecost, 50 days later, the spirit of God is sent. So four of the seven feasts of Israel were fulfilled. Those were types and illustrations of what Messiah would do in his first coming. And the last three will be fulfilled when he literally sec at his second coming. So God never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Take for instance, the fifth commandment. Uh, God gives the, uh, most detailed, expression of it in Deuteronomy 5. The two places the Decalogue is given is Exodus 20, Deuteronomy 5. Let me just turn there to Deuteronomy 5 for just a second. Um, God is, again, very specific. He says, honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God has commanded you that your days may be prolonged and that it may go well with you on the land which the Lord is the Tetragrammaton, God's covenant name with Israel, that the Lord your God gives you. So uh, when you come into the New Testament, that same commandment is quoted, but it's changed. Oh, wait a minute. You said, I think all the Ten Commandments are applicable. They are, but the application may change. In Ephesians chapter six, he says, children, obey your parents and the Lord for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise that it may be well with you. Okay, that's stationary and that you may live long and he changes it. Not in, the, not in the land, but on the earth. Oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. I thought all Ten Commandments uh, are applicable. They are, but the expression of how they may be lived out has changed. Initially, when God gave this, it applied to the people of Israel in the land of Israel, because that's where his people were. But now, because God has an international community, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, the same commandment, is uh, binding today, but its application has changed. Now it's not in the land, but on the earth because God's people are across the planet. So um, Christ, of course, you know, is raised from the dead on the first day of the week. The church, Acts 20, when do they meet? On the first day of the week. When is When are you to set aside a portion of what God has increased in your life? On the first day of the week. Uh, look, this is an old Seventh-day Adventist argument that some pope originated Sunday worship. That's just so far from the truth, like so much other, uh, so many other things that are taught in Seventh-day Adventism. You, you highlighted one of them here in your email to us about clean and unclean meats. Under the new covenant, all things are clean and permissible for God to eat, for God's people to eat. Um, so God is very, very clear here that under the new covenant, God's people meet, meet on the first day of the week. Interestingly, when we come to the millennial reign of Christ, 
when the Messiah literally rules and reigns on the earth for a thousand years, we will go back to worship on the seventh day. But right now, God's people, because we're distinguished from Israel, God's not done with Israel. God has a plan for the nation of Israel, but because the church is a distinct entity from Israel, his people meet on the first day of the week. So I have a whole sermon on that. Uh, If you go to my Genesis series, um, I think it's about the fourth or fifth sermon in you'll, you can tell by the title. Um, and I walk through all the scripture that deal with this and you'll get not the five minute answer, but the hour long answer. So that's what I would recommend this caller from uh, Rhode Island do. Great question. Let's go to the next one. All right. 843-525-1859. Toll free 877-924-947980. Or you can email us at tbl at w-a-g-p dot net. There it is. I see it there, Rick. You just brought it up. How to work and not get tired. Genesis 2, 1 to 3. Oh, I need data. <laughs> so that's uh, th- that's the message where I deal with the whole issue of why we observe the first day of the week rather than the seventh. Very good. So the, the Sabbath is the seventh day of the week, but we meet on the first day of the week. And not because some pope invented it, because that's the pattern that God gave us in his holy word. All right, our next caller would like your opinion on Christians reading fiction like C.S. Lewis's and others uh, that have written. Uh, Where should a Christian draw the line on what fiction they should read? Well, again, I think there are certain standards God gives in his word. Uh, Philippians chapter 4 and verse 8, God gives us some parameters in terms of uh, what we put into our heart. And And we need to take this seriously because... Again, under the banner of, quote-unquote, Christian freedom, uh, many believers are very loose today. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence in anything worthy of praise, let your mind dwell on these things. So that's what God's Word says. So there's a lot of movies today that are rated R, and when I was a child, they would have been rated X. So there's a lot of movies that are rated PG that, and when I was a boy, would be rated R. So the whole rating system habitually changes what people can say on the air, swear words, curse words, whatever, which were against the law that you were fined for by the FCC at one time are now permissible. Why? Because they set their standard based on the cultural norms and acceptance. Well, the cultural norms and acceptances are drifting. So the average Christian goes and watches, say, a Star Wars movie. Look, Star Wars, uh, the whole thought of it was uh, introduced by Carl Lucas, who uh, was a committed pantheist, and he wanted to create a movie that would teach pantheistic thought. That, that's not good. You know, we need to have some parameters. We need to think biblically. Now, you know, Lewis, he's an interesting guy, a little bit debatable on some subjects in terms of the way he looked at the imprecatory Psalms and some other things. But uh, certainly his uh, book, Mere Christianity, is a classic. Some people have certainly enjoyed a lot of his fictional works. They're supposedly Christian based. I don't know. Um, I'm not a big fan of that. I, 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 you know, some people enjoy that and I'm not here to criticize him. Some people love it. Uh, where do you draw the line on quote unquote Christian fiction when it's in violation of Philippians four, eight, nine, then you cross the line. And so if you have uh, a close walk with the Lord through an obedience and, and that's again, you know, people under the name of freedom, well, we're free in Christ, you know, and they, and they, and they really don't want to obey God. And so what happens is they lose their discernment in Hebrews chapter five. He, he talks about, 
uh, those who are able to discern between good and evil because they've trained and the Greek word there is the gymnasium. We get our word gymnasium from they've uh, trained their senses to discern good and evil. A lot of Christians have lost that because they don't really want to obey God. Their goal is not to see how uh, uh, their goal is not to see how holy I can live, but how close can I get to sin supposedly without sinning? And that and that's the wrong perspective. And that's why they l- have lost discernment and there's no real power on their lives. Good question. Let's go to the next one. All right. Alexis from Panama City Beach uh, in Florida says, would you please explain to me what is a separatist? Um, she did a little homework on this and really understanding, trying to understand the information she's gathering. I had the privilege to talk with a young woman about her relationship with God and was quickly responded that she was a separatist. I asked her who Jesus was, but was hung up on the fact I had no clue what a separatist was, never heard of the movement. Can you explain it so I can be better prepared in the future? Well, historically, it goes back to the early days in our country where you had pilgrims and Puritans, not to be confused with one another. They're two distinct groups, but there were some common principles in them. Both of them ultimately said, we don't want to... I yield to um, certain principles that are taught in the Church of England. And one wanted to go further and said, we don't want anything to do with the Church of England. Uh, And so they wanted to separate themselves and try to be true to the word of God. The modern day separatist movement are just Christians who say, you know, there is a place to draw a line in terms of fellowship. You know, do we fellowship with Christians, you know, who differ with us? on what I would consider to be orthodox issues. There there are some secondary issues that, you know, maybe God's people differ over. Let me give you an example. Um, All Christians would agree that Jesus will literally, physically, bodily return again to judge the living and the dead. Someone who denies that is not orthodox. They are not representative of uh, sound, historical, biblical Christianity. However, within that... Uh, truth that all genuine born-again Christians would embrace, there are some differences in terms of the timetable as to how Jesus will show up and what happens when he shows up. Uh, Those are important issues, and you will come down on and take a position on them. For instance, take baptism. Um, You know, there are some born-again Christians who practice infant baptism. Uh, the majority of Christians in the world, a missiologist puts it around 85 to 90% practice what we call post-conversion baptism. It's not a Baptist issue. It's, it's just, you know, they would say it's what the Bible teaches. I go to other countries of the world and they say, how do people baptize infants? Where do they get this in the Bible? You know, you've got to be educated into that position. It just doesn't come from the plain reading of scripture. But those 10, 15% that practice infant baptism, who have the plan of salvation, who are trying to win people to Jesus, does that mean we don't fellowship with them? Some would say, yes, I wouldn't. I would view that not as an, here's where I draw the line. And I think this is where scripture draws the line. If it's an issue, whether or not it will make you a genuine believer or not, then you certainly draw the line there. That's kind of a non-negotiable. But there are other issues that you have to take a position on as a church. So, you know, I have a whole message out of Romans, my series on Romans about biblical separation. And people say, well, Jesus calls us all to be unified and, you know, he wants us to be one. Well, that's true. And 
the most basic expression should be the local assembly, the local church, uh, not just the universal church. It starts in the local church. But God's word also teaches that there is a place to separate from those who are teaching false doctrine, because if you don't, if you don't separate, then you are basically condoning their false doctrine. So if the Mormons wanted me to uh, do something with them on some moral issue, maybe they said, well, let's let's try to outlaw, you know, um, abortion in South Carolina. Would you help us? I'd say, no, I won't help you. And I'll do it with other evangelical Christians, but I wouldn't hold hands with the Mormons and do it. Why? Because I'd basically be saying to them that there are Christians like we are and they're not. So the Bible teaches biblical separation. You might want to listen to my sermon from Romans 16, uh, 16, 17, 1 Timothy 6, Titus 3. I've got messages on all that where the Bible teaches that there is a time to separate from those who teach false doctrine. And then there are times, too, like someone just um, uh, called the church recently and they wanted to purchase a series by a particular lady. Um, who uh, she wanted, they wanted to donate this lady's uh, teaching on the book of Jonah so they could check it out in our library. And, and I said, no, we, we, we're not going to allow that series in our library. Why? Well, because she was egalitarian and she preaches in practice to uh, mixed audiences of men and women alike, which is in violation of the word of God. Now, you know, is she a Christian? Yeah, she's a Christian. Is she wrong on this issue? Yes. Would I invite her to come and speak at my church? No. Uh, why? Because um, she's in error on this. And so there are going to be some issues that aren't necessarily a test of whether or not you're a Christian, but you're going to take a position on and you have to apply it. And to me, this is a, a major issue. Why? Because young men are being feminized in the church because men are abdicating their responsibility. And you can look at it uh, historically And one of the first issues to go is the distinction between male and female roles in the church. And it's a slippery slope on down from there. Uh, You look at the Protestant denominations who said, well, we think women can be pastors. Now they say homosexuality is okay and the transgender lifestyle is okay. Look, there's there's a biblical principle. You will reap what you sow. So there are some issues that, you know, some might consider secondary, but you're going to have to take a position on unless you just want to please everybody and remain neutral. So you've got to take a position. But critical to biblical separation are issues that deal with uh, false doctrine that would keep someone from entering the kingdom of God. That's at the most basic level. All right. Very good. 525-1859. Toll free. 877-924-924. 7980 or email us at tbl at wagp.net. Our next listener, Gina from Beaufort, said uh, she was reading uh, Chronicles, Second Chronicles 28, a week or so ago, and noticed in verse 7 there is a man named Elkanah. Is this the same Elkanah in First Samuel who was Hannah's? Okay, wait, we uh, do have a live caller. We always give preference to live callers, so let's see if they're there now. I don't see a light, but let's see if they'll come up. Nope, nobody there. Uh, could they be on line two? Let me check line two, see if they're there. Uh, good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning, Pastor Brogy. Thank you for taking my call. Happy to. What can we do to help? I was watching an old interview with Joel Rosenberg, uh-huh. and, and he, uh, he he told the person interviewing him, he said, I can get into this in more depth, but he was very brief. And I think I heard him say that he believes that Daniel 9 
says that, or, or says that the Antichrist will come from Rome. Have you heard about this or is that theory? And what do you think? Well, of course, right now I'm looking at the 70 weeks prophecy of Daniel and I, uh, we're, we're spending, uh, four sermons in Daniel nine and I, first did one through 19, which is kind of an introduction to the prophecy. It's Daniel's prayer in response to that. Uh, you have uh, God sending Gabriel to really give an answer to his prayer far beyond anything he would have ever imagined. And so last week we looked at the uh, first 69 weeks, so to speak, where God makes a prediction, one concerning the rebuilding of the city of Jerusalem, which he said would take place in 49 years. And then 62 weeks later for a total of, um, you know, in the 70 weeks prophecy for a total of the 69 weeks, um, then um, God would send the Messiah. So that's the first part. And then we're going to see this next Sunday that there's a gap between the 69th and 70th weeks that Christ himself recognized. And there's a number of illustrations in the Old Testament where God gives a gap in the prophecy. And then the 70th week, we'll look at Lord willing the following week where we will see what God will do in the 70th week as it relates to the people of Israel and their coming to faith in, in Jesus as the savior of the world. But it is interesting here. We spoke first last week about the people who are involved in this prophecy. And so um, he's very, very clear. 70 weeks have been decreed for your people. So this prophecy, the 70 weeks prophecy first concerns your people. Who are your people? Well, Daniel's a Hebrew. So his people are the Hebrew people. So he speaks of your people. Then he speaks about Messiah, the prince, um, who, of course, is a reference to uh, the Lord Jesus. He fulfilled that prophecy. And then he goes on and he says that after the 62 weeks, Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Now we have 2020 hindsight. And of course, after Messiah was cut off and killed, uh, we learn in 70 AD that the city and the sanctuary were destroyed, just as Jesus prophesied there in the Mount of Olives. Who did that? The Romans. So it's a reference here to the Roman people. And the prince of the people who is to come did it. Not the prince, but the prince of the people who is to come. And so what does that tell us? It tells us that uh, this uh, coming Antichrist, who's going to commit in the next verse, the abomination of desolation, is going to come from a revived Roman Empire. And that's totally consistent what we've what we've already studied in the book of Daniel. He speaks about these different uh, groups. If you remember, there was a metallic uh, statue in God gives a uh, interpretation of the dream through Daniel and the head of gold. It represented Babylon and the silver Brass represented the Medo-Persia Empire and the brass, Greece, and then the legs and the feet. And so he describes the legs of iron and then feet of iron and clay. And he describes uh, this coalition of nations. And then we learned in the seventh chapter where God describes from his point of view, a divine point of view, uh, these various empires, uh, that there'll be a little horn will come up among those nations. So uh, the prince of the people who is to come is going to come out of the former Roman Empire. Now, the debate is, well, you know, does it come out of the eastern leg or the western leg or 
uh, and we'll we'll discuss that not only as we are in Daniel, but as we come to the Revelation. So I would say, uh, you know, Rosenberg is correct. It's not a theory. It's it's just plainly taught here, and we'll we'll study that in the next couple of weeks. So hold on and uh, just keep listening, and we'll come to that very issue. Let's go to the next question. All right. Had you uh, given any thought? To, you know, when when the European Union started to get over ten, I said, oh, okay, well that's it. That's not what the, it was. But now with Brexit. The, the numbers coming down again. It, it could be certainly uh, the European Union, uh, which of course was built on the Treaty of Rome. That's what it was established on, uh, and, and we'll look at that whole thing. All we know is that by the time the tribulation is here, there will be a coalition of ten nations out of uh, the former Roman Empire, and it, it might be that it will shrink down to ten. Uh, and it will be out of the current nations of the European Union. Uh, but we'll look at that, and we're, we're going to come to it and study it in detail, especially when we come to the Revelation. All right. And Gina, going back to her question, she's wondering whether the Elkanah in Second uh, Chronicles 28, uh, verse 7, is the same one as in First Samuel, who is Han- Hannah's husband. It's a good question. So, you know, trying to get a handle on the the large time frames of the Bible will really open the word of God to you. So, you know, Elkanah, who you meet in first Samuel, what time of Israel's history is Samuel ministering? And that's always a good question. You always want to ask it. What time is this prophet in ministry or what time is this book written? And of course, initially, all 12 tribes were united. Uh, they were called Israel in the first three kings. Uh, Saul, David, and Solomon each ruled for 40 years each for a total of 120 years, and the kingdom is united. It's all called Israel. But because of Solomon's compromise, God said he was going to split the kingdom. And he said, though, for the sake of your father David, I won't do it in your lifetime. I'll wait until your son comes to the throne. So his son, Rehoboam, comes to the throne, and the kingdom is split in two. Um, and, of course, the northern kingdom is called Judah. The southern kingdom is called Israel and some different names for both northern and southern kingdoms. So when you come to First Samuel and you, you turn to the initial chapters, you, you discover that, you know, oh, Saul, he, he ends up being the first king. And you read through First and Second Samuel and then, then uh, David and so forth. Well, when you come into Chronicles, you discover the kingdom's already split, uh, northern and southern. Uh, So you have the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, and it will often in both Chronicles and Kings talk about two kings ruling at once, because on the one hand, it's speaking about the king who's in the north, Israel, which can be a little confusing sometimes because uh, it's not just all 12 tribes, but just the 10 northern tribes. Uh, And then you have the two southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin, uh, the southern kingdom named after the larger of the two. So when you come into First and Second Chronicles, you realize, well, the kingdom is already split. So it's a, a lot of time has gone by, over 120 years. So is it the same Al-Qaeda? No. So um, if you can try to put yourself in the time frame of where am I in Israel's history, those questions like that will kind of answer themselves. All right, very good. Our next caller says that he has had so many questions from non-believers about when Christians use the New Covenant versus versus the Old Covenant. How do you explain to them where the line is drawn between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant after Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection? Well, again, from the perspective of the first half of the Bible, uh, what Jews call the Tanakh, they don't call it the Old Testament because it's the only testament they have, so to speak. 
Uh, Tanakh is an, an acronym for uh, Torah, the first five books, the, the, the Ketuvim, the wisdom literature, and, and the Nevim, the prophets. And so they refer to the Old Testament as the Tanakh. And in Jeremiah the prophet, God spoke of a new covenant that had not yet been enacted. He said, but this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and on their heart I will write it and I will be their God and they shall be my people and they shall not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother saying, know the Lord. Why? For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. How so? Because or for, it's causal in Hebrew, I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. So they could not become recipients of this new covenant until Messiah could provide a way in which that would be possible. Remember, the blood of bulls and goats could never really take away sin. They were all images and uh, shadows of what was going to come. Uh, Ezekiel the prophet in the 36th chapter says in verse 26, moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. Again, he's speaking about Israel, though the New Testament quotes, because we've been grafted into Israel, as Romans 11 indicates, we can become recipients of this new covenant even before they will. But in both Jeremiah and Ezekiel, he's looking down to the end of time. And we're going to study this in the 70th week prophecy of Daniel. We hit on it briefly last week. In fact, I referenced this text from Ezekiel, at least in one of the services. And we're going to look down the cartridge of time. And so Ezekiel speaks to the fact, as does Jeremiah, how he's going to gather the people physically. That's happening. Uh, God is gathering the Jewish people back into the land. And it's accelerating, especially in West from Western Europe. Uh, you know, the, the president of France came out a month or two ago. He's very concerned. Why? Because all the Jews are leaving France. I'd leave France too if I were Jewish. Uh, it's just not a safe place to live. But it's a monetary drain and it's a brain drain. Uh, listen, some of the smartest people in the world are Jewish people. You look at the Nobel Prizes and see who won them. I'll tell you what, they, they, they beat about 10 to 1. And some people think, well, we shouldn't give them so many Nobel Prizes to the Jewish people and all these other great uh, things. But Again, God is regathering them into the land. There has to be a physical regathering before there's going to be a spiritual rejuvenation. But remember at the last supper and while they were eating, Jesus took some bread and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat. This is my body. And when he had taken a cup, he he gave it to them and said, drink from it, all of you, for this is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the many for forgiveness of sins. And so every time we celebrate the Lord's table, what are we celebrating? The new deal. Remember the word covenant uh, in Greek, diatheke, it means um, a a promise. Uh, We can translate it, the new covenant, the old covenant, the new Testament, the old Testament, the new covenant, the old covenant. Now there are, there are covenants within the old Testament, for instance, like the Abrahamic covenant, which is being ignored by uh, our American leadership God will bless those who bless Israel. He'll curse those who curse Israel. God help us. The only thing that's keeping us alive as a nation is that we are one of Israel's few remaining allies 
And if we uh, go against them, which someday all the nations of the world will, I'm telling you, it's over for America. It's over at that point. In either case, God is very clear that every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we are celebrating the new deal, the new covenant. And it initiated itself, so to speak, when Jesus was on Golgotha, the blood of the new covenant. Uh, he, that's the means by which God would provide forgiveness of our sin. And because he did that, he could send the promise of the spirit because their sins would be forgiven. God's spirit could come live in and dwell within us. And that's what we experienced through the second birth. All right. I think we've got time for one more. Our right. next caller says she has a friend who has a daughter who accepted Christ, but is now living a lifestyle contrary to what the Bible teaches. Could she have lost her salvation, or do you think she never had a true conversion? Okay, this is what I would suggest to this caller to give you a really complete answer, because we've got less than two minutes less left. Go to searchthescriptures.org, go to the Back to Basic series, listen to the first message. It's called The Eternal Security of the Believer. The Bible does teach once saved, always saved, but understand assurance of salvation is given on three levels in the New Testament. It's kind of a three-legged stool. One level is the finished work of Christ. So the Bible does say that you can know you have eternal life. And that's why very often in the New Testament, when someone was saved, they were baptized the same day, typically the same hour, because they could confess that their salvation was not based in human merit, but in the finished work of Christ. Assurance of salvation is also given in the New Testament on a changed life. Jesus said, you can know them by their fruit. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. So if you don't see fruit, if you see a denial of lifestyle, a denial of confession by uh, an, a reprobate lifestyle, then you are typically looking at a lost man. That's why the Bible says, test yourself to see if you really be of the faith. And the third level is the inner testimony of the spirit. But can you lose salvation? No. Once saved, always saved. But if you have salvation, do you give the marks that you are a new creature in Christ Jesus? So, you know, we live in a day of decision Christianity. Pray this prayer and look, someone can pray the prayer and be saved at that moment and forever change. But there's a lot of people who are praying prayers and they don't even know what the gospel is. Uh, and this is the sad reality of the day that we live in. So go to the Back to Basic series. In fact, the fact that you're even asking that question tells me that you don't have a grounding in the essentials of the New Testament. And so Billy Graham, if he was right, he said some years ago that 90 to 95% of the genuine Christians in America are baby Christians. So when someone gets saved at Community Bible Church, we have them go through the discovery class, which is 45 weeks long. About 33 of those weeks are online under the Back to Basics series. I hope to have all 45 before we are finished. Uh, but I would start with what's there. It will ground you. It will equip you so that th this is like the question you're asking is like basic Christianity. It's essential. So start, go to the Back to Basic series, listen to the first session, which I think I take three weeks on, three Wednesday nights. You can put it on your phone and download the audio vision with the Search the Scriptures app, or you can watch it visually as you live stream it. Anyway, we're out of time for today. Thanks for joining us. God bless you as you walk with Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm.